Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Josh Brolin from The Goonies 2. You're listening to Film Spotting? That's a question. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. It was promised me that you'll survive. That you won't. Give up. No matter what happens. No matter how hopeless. I know it must have seemed hopeless at times, Adam, but tell me, did you survive all three hours and 14 minutes of Titanic? Three hours. Up in first class, we got a shorter, more efficient version. I don't know about you rats in steerage. Sucks. (laughs) Dreamy Leo DiCaprio in that clip from, if not the best movie of the 90s, certainly the biggest James Cameron's Titanic. This week on the show, a sacred cow review of the 20-year-old disaster epic. And Adam and I mount a little rescue effort on behalf of 90s movies that, unlike Titanic, could be at risk of sinking into obscurity. We'll share our top five overlooked movies of the decade that gave us Pulp Fiction, Goodfellas, and Jurassic Park. All that and more ahead on Film Spotting. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Next week, Josh, we officially kick off Film Spotting Madness, our movie-centric take on March Madness brackets. In years past, we've done actors and actresses, then we did directors, and most recently, we did Film Spotting Pantheon movies. This year, it's going to be the best of the 1990s. We have 64 90s movies, only one of them can reign supreme. Before we embark on that, though, we wanted to give some love to some of the many great films that did not make 
that 64 film bracket. They are not going to be in contention for this year's Film Spotting Madness crown. So that brings us to our top five that we will get to later in the show, Overlooked 90s Movies. And I'm sure we can get into the criteria a little bit there, Overlooked versus Underappreciated, maybe. Well, my issue with this criteria is there was some math involved. There was. You, you sent me some lists of I top 100. Yeah. Any that's, top five that involves a spreadsheet yeah. is a little beyond the pale, Adam. That's so, maybe the first time I've ever had to do that. Uh, no, I've gotten spreadsheets before. Well, but for a top five? Well, maybe not. So I hope I did this right. I hope my math is correct. Well, if you were wrong, I will be sure to tell you so. And if not me, our listeners will. So look forward to that top five later in the show. But first, as we've noted, Titanic will go on and on and on. But will our hearts? Time to find out if Adam and I still have affection for the 1997 behemoth with our Sacred Cow Review. Seeing her coming out of the darkness like a ghost ship still gets me every time. Take a look at this drawing that we found just today. A piece of paper that's been underwater for 85 years. I'll be damned. All right, you have my attention. Can you tell us who the woman in the picture is? Oh, yes. The woman in the picture is me. Louis XVI wore a stone called the Blue Diamond of the Crown. And today it would be worth more than the Hope Diamond. If your grandmother's who she says she is, she was wearing the diamond the night the ship sank. You really think she was there? Oh, yeah. I'm a believer. Are you ready to go back to Titanic? If you're not already reading her work over at Vox.com, you may remember critic Alyssa Wilkinson popping up on one of our top 10 films of 2017 roundtable shows. She did not recently revisit Titanic. Josh, she actually visited Titanic for the first time. She missed out on the experience when it came out in 1997. She would have been 14 years old because she grew up in an evangelical household that didn't permit going to such movies. And over the years, she just hadn't caught up with it until the occasion of its 20th anniversary. So just this past December, she finally boarded Titanic and was swept away by it. Wilkinson writes, what's compelling is the fantasy of being loved for who you are by someone who doesn't want anything other than to love you, someone who would rather literally die than let you experience a living death. It fulfills the human desire, as Ebert put it, to be cherished, the experience of having someone look at you as if you fill their whole field of vision and spill over the edges. Those are good things to want and better things to experience, but as we age, time usually moderates these sorts of desires. Watching Titanic, they all come roaring back. And so who cares if the dialogue is stilted in Cameron's typical style or that some of the most iconic scenes, particularly those taking place on the prow of the ship, are easy to parody. If they were subtler or more understated, they wouldn't be fantasy. Titanic leans hard into its dreams and, for my money, succeeds. I watched it for the first time at age 34, but I felt 14 again. So she didn't actually have the 14-year-old experience with Titanic, but I know someone who did, my daughter Sophie. Close enough, anyway. She's a few months away from her 14th birthday. I was determined, Josh, if I was going to commit to this rewatch of James Cameron's 97 Best Picture winner, box office juggernaut, I was not going to go down with the ship alone. I enlisted her. She was willing, especially because, and this gets right to Wilkinson's point, She had never seen it, but was still so familiar with those iconic scenes that her siblings and her cousins have done many parody videos over the years. (laughs) So she was ready and she was eager to watch the movie. And she lasted one hour and 47 minutes Hmm. at the one hour and 47 mark. I'm trying to remember. Well, that's when the ship starts to go down. Okay, there's no turning back from there. 
it's going to sink. And we know for certain that we're going to spend the next 90 minutes watching 1,500 or so people die. She asked me, can I leave? She just really didn't want to experience that. And I couldn't really blame her. It's why I kind of dreaded watching the movie again as well. But about 20 minutes later, she came back into the room. This time, she had her phone with her. I think it was a little bit of a shield. Don't worry, honey. Many deaths are still coming. (laughs) I did not. I just let her sit. And I saw her sneaking a bunch of peeks at the TV while she was busy Snapchatting and texting her friends. And I was okay with that. She was discreet enough about it. And I really wasn't sure how much attention she was paying until those last 15 or 20 minutes when I noticed she wasn't getting the phone out so much anymore. Yet I couldn't see her face. I didn't know how she was reacting to any of this. I assume, Josh, that she was completely tuned out of Titanic at this point. The screen goes black at the end. Tears. Oh, no. Sudden Tears, streams of them, sobbing, Sophie says. Well, that was a really sad movie. (laughs) And horrible father that I am, I burst out laughing. Oh. Because I was just so shocked. This girl who I thought wasn't paying attention at all was actually wrapped by the end of the movie and was so moved that she cried for 15 minutes. It just destroyed her. Now, we were a little older than 14 back in 1997 when we watched this film for the first time. And the only time? Is that true for both of us? Yes. Okay. We're also a little bit older now than 34. Has time modulated your desires at all? Were you left sobbing like Sophie or spellbound like Alyssa? Or perhaps were you doing your best Billy Zane impression sneering at the overwrought spectacle? Well, in my best Billy Zane, I will say, this ship is unsinkable. Unsinkable, I tell Uh you. And I'll say that about 14 more times. So nice job, Adam, of making me not only look like a jerk to one of the critics I most admire in Alyssa, but also to your teen daughter and be Mr. Meanie. I knew this was coming. That oof. I knew it was coming. Oof, Titanic. I did did write oof in my notes three times. I I mean, I'm going to still come out on the positive side on this movie. Okay, I can't wait to see how you do that trick after that beginning. As I mentioned, I was, you know, mildly positive the first time around. I was impressed by it. Here was my experience. is basically the first time I saw Titanic, I thought, man, is that romance Mm storyline a dog? But wow, is that some really technical achievement we get in the spectacle. And I've never seen anything like that before. Uh This time was like, wow, is that romance storyline worse than I remember? (laughs) And you know what? I've seen all this stuff. So it was not a great revisit, but I want to balance that with, you know, just because I found it tiresome the second time around doesn't mean the first time around that experience should be discounted. So this is a fine movie. I think Alyssa's, I I did not get around to, I meant to check out because you had mentioned on last week's show what she wrote and didn't get a chance to do that. So I'm glad you shared some of that and I can see where she's coming from. Mm -hmm. I think the counter I would give is that the compelling fantasy she describes and Titanic does go for, I've seen that depicted much more convincingly, romantically, swooningly, emotionally 
something like, you know, Romeo and Juliet moved me at the time with Leonardo DiCaprio with a similar star-crossed lover story. That mm-hmm. one I did – I guess I'm trying to set aside the fact that, yes, I was older when I saw Titanic. Yes, I am a guy, whatever credence you want to lend to that. Okay, well, this older guy also found a year earlier a very similar storyline to be romantic, to be emotional, to be moving. It never struck me that way in Titanic for reasons maybe we can get into. You might say it's the James Cameron factor. You and I split famously on (laughs) the tunnel scene in The Terminator between Linda Hamilton and Michael Bean. You consider that to be quite a moving sequence. I found it to be pretty hokey. But I'm going to also say I think James Cameron has done this sort of thing that Alyssa is describing really well, combining loss and death and love in the abyss, that fantastic moment between Ed Harris and Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, mm-hmm. where there is sacrifice involved. And that is one of my favorite James Cameron scenes. So the guy's capable of it. This isn't just, oh, the technician can't do emotion. I think he can't. I think he's proven that. I don't think Titanic pulls that off. And yeah, to go back to where I started, when that is not working still for me and the technical proficiency has lost its sheen, this isn't a movie I really want to watch a third time for sure. Well. I wouldn't say it is for me either, but I definitely liked it a lot more than you. I would give Cameron a lot more credit for it, I think, than you, though I may be not quite as rapturous. For the romantic storyline you give him more credit for? I will counter what you said only to the extent that certainly it's impossible to have the same response to the technical achievement of the film 20 years later. But I think that's mainly because – because it's not as if I wasn't still impressed with it. I I really was, actually. But – especially if you're watching it on your couch at home, it's going to be very different than watching it in the theater the first time. And I remember I was having flashbacks to that first viewing experience, and I was in a little theater that still exists, though it's not a movie theater anymore, in Iowa City, Iowa, called The Inglert, which did not have the chairs rocking with the sound, of course, or even surround sound. I think at that point it wasn't IMAX, it wasn't 3D, it wasn't any of that. And yet... When that ship really starts to go down, I remember being in awe of that spectacle. And I felt that a little bit here. But I would say that what I did respond to somehow more at this point in my life than the technical side of the movie was that relationship. It was that central relationship between Leo DiCaprio, between Jack, and between Rose, of course, Kate Winslet. And I think I was struck, too, when I was even listening back to last week's episode where we played a clip from Titanic – DiCaprio sounds like he's 14 years old. Oh, yeah. It's unbelievable how young he is and how, in contrast, I think they were about the same age, actually, 21, 22 when this was shot, and yet appropriate for her character, who is someone who does seem to carry more baggage, literally and figuratively, is someone who is a little more world-weary. She seems so much more mature and older than him. Yes, and I understand such the, a boy. the casting of that, that they wanted to have that element, but I think they overshot it because this is where it registered even more to me that there is a difference that does not work at all. He doesn't seem like he's a little younger and more carefree. He seems like he's her puppy, like she's hmm. found a puppy on the ship. And I do like DiCaprio's performance. Like that, yeah, when we really get good. to things that, that we did like about it or mm-hmm. that I did like about it, I want to spend some time on DiCaprio. And I also, I don't think Winslet is giving a bad performance. No. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about yeah. their no, I, I particular think, roles. I think they're great when they're together on screen. I think Leo overall is effortless. He's also effervescent throughout the film. And Winslet, you do, for me, Josh, maybe this is where it, it breaks down for you a little bit, is you have to believe their connection, certainly, or 
everything she does in that last hour and a half of the movie while the ship is sinking is utterly absurd and it will lose all the stakes. And that didn't happen for me. And I was struck by that puppy dog thing you mentioned. That's actually intriguing to me. And that's something I kind of like about the film that Cameron, who so clearly is enamored by the Jack character. This movie soars the moment he comes on screen. There's just an exuberance there, and he is clearly, I think, the stand-in for the Cameron character as director, and yet he's willing to portray him in that way. In fact, there's that famous sex scene in the car where at the end of that scene, he's the one who's playing the traditionally submissive female role in that sex scene, in the aftermath of the sex scene, who's shivering, who seems like it's been a much more important life-changing experience for him than it is for her and is actually laying on her chest being comforted at the end of it. I was really struck by that, and I was slacking with Sam about this movie a little bit. He, by the way, went for it even more than I did on this revisit. He joked, and I think he's accurate here, he joked that Leo is almost the manic pixie dream guy in this movie. He is. He's this carefree, life-changing force who facilitates her fulfillment, her hopes and dreams, and that Cameron would offer up that character is intriguing. I worked on a squid boat in Monterey. Then I went down to Los Angeles to the pier in Santa Monica and started doing portraits there for 10 cents a piece. Why can't I be like you, Jack? Just head out for the horizon whenever I feel like it. See, we'll go there sometime to that pier, even if we only ever just talk about it. No, we'll do it. We'll drink cheap beer. We'll ride on the roller coaster till we throw up. <laughs> then we'll ride horses on the beach, right in the surf. Now, but you'll have to do it like a real cowboy. None of that side saddle stuff. You mean one leg on each side? Yeah. Can you show me? Sure, if you like. And that's the good side of this gap between them that I think the movie does have and does play with. I, I think Bill Paxton, though, is Cameron's stand-in well, as the explorer. We'll you know, get to that. There, there are lots of stand-ins, I would argue, for yeah, Cameron Yeah, Bill movie. Paxton stood out for me as that. I wish that that dynamic, which you describe and does exist in the first half, continued once things start going bad. It was striking to me how much that relationship shifts where suddenly this he becomes woman, the man of action the man of action who's telling her every step to take and she is helpless and Cameron is a director who has a you know a, a long-standing record of really intriguing dominating female characters mm -hmm. so it, it kind of took me by surprise like I didn't remember this I as a matter of fact remembered her carrying that sort of persona all the way through to the end now this it's all being set up to make to give you that emotional wallop, I think, yeah. you know, to to have her be the one who he needs to sacrifice himself for. Right. But I think in doing that, you undercut a well, lot of that building up that I'll happened say, in the first half. I pointed out he becomes the man of action, but I think what you're saying is misleading as well because the fact is the extent she goes on her own to save him, to come back at the end, she has ample opportunities to take the easy way out here. And she constantly, on her own agency, makes lots of decisions, bold, daring, courageous decisions to act. Yeah, she makes she makes the choice to be with him. And it's from that point on, once things start going insane and their lives are right. basically going to end, it's very much 
grab my hand. Yeah. I'll show you what to but do. But it's not and because that's in contrast with how it, she was. It's before. not because she's so lost without him. She's this little girl who needs him. I think actually one thing that struck me, and I want to get into some of these things, the things that you forgot the first time that you were surprised by when you saw it again. And one of them for me was that they meet <laughs> their meet cute is her trying to kill herself or at least contemplating suicide there on the edge of the ship. And part of me did initially kind of question her sense of existential angst there. Would she really be doing that? But overall, especially as we get further into the film, I think Winslet and Cameron do a pretty good job making her truly seem miserable, truly trapped, as opposed to, say, just someone who's bored. And it actually does really set up all that behavior later because, yes, she loves Jack. She's willing to risk her life in the manner she is, though, because we already know that she's decided that the life that exists, her life before him, before this sort of life-changing experience was one she was already willing to reject. So it made me actually understand a lot of those decisions later in the film. I will give her credit for selling being miserable in her current life mm-hmm. without – revealing how miserable I also sense Winslet might have been in this role. I just got the feeling throughout that she understood this was so beneath her. And I don't mean she wasn't trying. I think Winslet is – this is a compliment to her. I think she is yeah. lending all of her power to sell this thing. And yet, because she is such a performer of conviction and fire and – I, I saw someone describe her somewhere online today when I was reading up on her, a ballsy actress, yeah. that to suddenly be put in a part like this, even though it has the markers, the marking points of, you know, this this is pandering feminism in a lot of ways where it, you're going to have characters point out repeatedly how she's stuck in this gilded life. And, oh, women, women, you know, women are this, women are that. It, it's it's not just Billy Zane who talks in these obvious platitudes. It's multiple characters in the film. That surprised me. I remembered Zane. It's not pointing that out I, to criticize I, that, Josh? No, it obviously is. Yeah. But it's but, but it's pointing it out with a sledgehammer, right. just like Zane is pointing out good, that this yeah. ship is not unsinkable. I've got a good like pandering feminism line that, to That's share. something that I think Winslet is in tune in spirit with that idea, but not with the ham-fistedness that it's being mm-hmm. sold in this she, movie. She and I use everything here, that character, with depth that it otherwise doesn't have. I'll give you that. Yeah, and I, I think that is also at odds with their relationship. I think that gets in the way of me, at least, completely buying this romance. Now, what sells it on me as much as I am sold on it is, just to go back briefly to DiCaprio, because this was, to see him these years on, that young, as you mentioned, that enthusiastic, that invested. Like, I guess the difference between them is that he he's giving it his all, and you sense that he really believes it. Winslet's giving it her all, and you, you sense she doesn't. And DiCaprio here is like, I kept coming back to, I think maybe because I watched it in the last year or two, but Tom Cruise in Top Gun. This is just the sort of performance where, and I know he'd been big just before this as well, but you see a performer saying, I am going to be an enormous star Mm -hmm. and nothing you can do is going to stop me. That's how he plays the character. That's how he plays the part. And I think it works. I think that that carried me through the first half of the film. Hmm. Another thing I really appreciated about the movie and reading today Alyssa's article for the first time, she touches on the fact that she remembers back in 97 hearing people on the radio talking about how, well, it's probably not really going to be a hit anyway. There's a Bond movie coming out at the same time. And, well, we all know how it ends anyway. Ha ha ha. 
Cameron actually, and I'd completely forgotten about this, doubles down on that whole concept of us already knowing the ending. He has that video guy, and I apologize, I couldn't find his name online. I'm not exactly sure who he is, but he's the guy who operates the camera for Bill Paxson's crew. And he, after we've met Old Rose, Gloria Stewart's come on board, and I think it's right before she starts to tell the story, he tells the story in... 90 seconds of what happens to Titanic. So he breaks down with video display, the iceberg scraping along the ship, it filling up, the fact that it's going to tip and then it's going to break and then it's going to sink straight down. And the result of that, Josh, it's actually a brilliant move by Cameron because it's sort of a classic Hollywood trope to to already tell us what's going to happen so that then we're completely anticipating it. And it actually makes it more suspenseful because we're way ahead of the characters. We know exactly what's about to happen. And then because we do, we're never thinking moment to moment about what's happening, why it's happening, how it's happening. We are only focused on how those characters, those people who we've become attached to, are going to react in each moment. So it's actually really a brilliant move by Cameron, I think. Now the stern section just kind of bobs there like a cork for a couple of minutes, floods, and finally goes under about 2.20 a.m., two hours and 40 minutes after the collision. The bow section planes away, landing about a half a mile away, going 20, 30 knots when it hits the ocean floor. Pretty cool, huh? Thank you for that fine forensic analysis, Mr. Bodine. Of course, the experience of it was somewhat different. Yeah, I, I like that too on this revisit. And it does those logistical functional things you're talking about. I think it does work correctly for the emotional scheme that he wants to play so that we aren't thrown into Dunkirk chaos, mm-hmm. let's say. You know, there's also some hubris to this sort of doubling down because it's yeah. like, look at this amazing thing that went down. Here's a computer simulation. Now I'm going yeah. to show it to you oh, yeah. as a master filmmaker. Uh-huh. And he does, and he, yep. and he and makes he the off. play, and he pulls it off. And that's something that I did still admire yeah. on this revisit. What about other things maybe that you didn't remember from your first time around? I've got a few more. I forgot how much time we do spend with Bill Paxton and that crew before we actually get to the flashback, before we get to Titanic. And I'll say about Bill Paxton, who I love, and I love the fact that Cameron uses him in so many of his films— Only Bill Paxton could make a dude bro like that. Somewhat likable. Only Bill Paxton could pull that. I said somewhat, but only he could give him just a little bit, a little bit of humor. I'll give you this. You don't hate him. No, you don't hate him. I forgot, not that it matters, that Jack's king of the world moment, that moment, comes so early in the movie. For some reason, I had always had it in my mind that... It was with her. Right. That's not his friend, Fabrizio. We may touch on him and Danny Nuzzi's performance, but I thought it was with her. It's not. It's really early in the movie. It's when he first gets on the ship and runs right to the edge and says that line. The humor of it. Yes, there are some unintentionally funny moments. Hopefully, we'll get to one or two of them. But there are also some that are clearly intentional that I didn't remember. The shot of them when she's, when Gloria Stewart has been telling, it's been all in flashback leading up to the sex scene in the car. And then we cut back to the present day, and Cameron just cuts to 
the audience. Basically, yeah. they're surrogates for us, everybody aboard that ship, watching Gloria Stewart, waiting for her to get to the get to the good stuff. That's a funny moment. That's a it visual is. gag, too, that's funny. And it was absolutely necessary at that point in time. Like, the movie needed to yeah, breathe there yes. really badly, and so that's very it. clever to put it in. Early on, when she starts telling the story, and she says, it was 84 years ago, and he stops her and says, anything you can remember? And she's like, are you going to let me tell the story? Mm-hmm. And she starts again. It was 84 years ago, and yet I remember it, you know, like it was yesterday. That's a funny moment. And the strings playing on yes. the deck of the Titanic as it's going down. There is something a little bit emotional about it, I will say. I had a reaction to it. Their their willingness to go ahead and to enjoy, for lack of a better word, those final moments by playing that music. But, Josh, the line where they first stop, when they finally, after playing for an hour or whatever, they stop and the guy says, nobody's bloody listening anyway. That's straight out of Monty Python. I'm sorry. <laughs> and I think Cameron knows that when, when he puts that line in the movie. One other thing I didn't remember. Gloria Stewart here is really good. My recollection of her performance as Old Rose Josh was that it was completely functional. That it was just functional. It, it served what the movie needed it to do. And the fact that she got, I believe, an Oscar nomination out of it was just a nice gesture. And and I still probably think it's a gesture compared to, I'm sure, the other performances I would have anointed at the time. But it is better. It is more nuanced than I had remembered it thinking it was just, well, it's nice that they gave this old time actress a few lines here. No, she she does a really nice job. Don't don't make me also no, be, do mean yeah, be mean to, to the elderly, Stewart. Josh. No, yeah. I'm, I'm just going to move on to a touch Really? You that, don't think she's good? Uh, no, I, th- I thought that it was— That humor comes through. That fierceness comes through. It's not just— Let me put her she's in— She's not the, just reciting Let me put lines. her in the win. No, she's not. Let me put her in the Winslet category. I, I wish—there's a couple of good lines that you mentioned, the humorous ones. I think she gets a chance to kind of come to life there, but otherwise she's stuck with a lot of hokey stuff. She does— what she can mm-hmm. with it. Here, here's something that I appreciated this time around and, and didn't remember as well. And it ties into the fact that we do get a lot of time on that research ship. Mm-hmm. I liked the segues back and forth where these cameras from the exploratory submersibles will be going through the ghostly ship and then transition us via CGI to the actual set of the mm-hmm. Titanic. That's a motif that's returned to a couple of times. It just bridges the past and present yeah. in a really delicately artful way, but also in a way that helps us to realize these weren't just people in a history book. Mm-hmm. These, This isn't just a story we've heard a million times, yeah. but these are people who have a generational link. Yeah. You know, by putting her on board, mm-hmm. you know, that that is, you could say, also maybe a hokey move, but I think it is crucial to, to put her that close to the place right. where she actually lived. Well, then lived. he mirrors that with the camera eye being the point of view, the camera, the technology they're using to go through the sunken ship, yes. later being then the mind's eye of her going exactly. back through the ship yeah. when she was actually on it. Yeah, so I, I think there are some delicate uses of the special effects here. I think some of the CGI, as is going to happen, doesn't look as sharp or crisp. The iceberg, perhaps, in particular, has a little bit of that computer game feel. But you do get a sense of the scale, you know? And I yes. there was much discussion at the time about the set that was built right. and how it was nearly the size of the actual uh-huh. Titanic well, portions of it. Well, it takes us it. into the the inner workings of it. He yes. actually shows us how it's being powered, which yes. maybe some other directors might not try to pull off. So I did appreciate that. I think there's some good use of the camera, particularly when the lifeboats are beginning mm-hmm. to be lowered and there are hiccups there where yep. they're tilted and the camera itself will go up and down or even 
peer up at certain characters when the class issues come into play. Again, I mean, the, the class identity theme is something that also could have been underplayed quite a bit more and been just as effective. But I did like how the camera starts to recognize that when things go down and often mm-hmm. we're looking up at certain people and yeah. down at others. So I think that helped carry me through that hour and a half death montage we essentially get. Uh-huh. But it it did start to wear on me this time around. There's a It's all done well, but there's a lot of flooding. There's a lot of yes. falling bodies. And there's a lot of as you would expect in these types of films, last second heroics where sure. they just get the key in or they're just saved in the nick of time. And we do get a lot of that. Of that. And some and of yet, that is unnecessary, though. It's unnecessary. Like, it still was effective on me. Well, it of still course, works. because people are about to drown. I mean, I you're always going to respond to that. But the steward who, like, yeah. you know, almost passes them up for really no good reason. And then he does eventually come back mm-hmm. and try to give them the keys. Right. But there's a lot of that, like, last second, let's see how we can amp this up just a little bit more. For sure. So some other ticky-tack things. And these are the things that everyone remembers about the movie. Of course, the something Picasso line is a gem. (laughs) And the line early in the movie, Ismay, the man who came up with the ship, the idea for Titanic, and is really the the driving force behind it, the vision anyway, his line, who's this Freud? Is he a passenger? <laughs> right? I mean, really not some of not some of Cameron's best writing. Okay, we get that. But there are others too that stood out to me where, for example, Jack keeps saying he's from Chippewa Falls, except he keeps saying Chippewa Falls, which no one from Chippewa Falls, I'm going to say, I, I've, just no one I've ever encountered in my life as a Midwesterner ever calls it that. So, you know, Attention to detail Mm -hmm. missed there, James Cameron. (laughs) Fabrizio. I had to look this up. Well, actually, I didn't have to look it up because I recognize the actor from other work. Danny Nucci, actually born in Austria, talks in the movie like no Italian ever talks in the history of Italian people. And that's kind of funny. I would say unintentionally. What about the, the, their Irish friend? Would you say he's? Uh, uh, that one didn't stand out to me as much. No, but maybe I don't have the ear. I don't have okay. the ear for right. Irish the way I do for Italian. Josh, how about the moment? And and Paxton, you want to talk about trying with sincerity to deliver a key line, and you have to use every every trick in your bag. I never let Titanic in. Yeah, that's it's rough. It's really rough. That's the kind where if my tears were starting to come out at that right. point, they would have, of their own power, crawled back into my yeah. eyes. It's well, so bad. Then, I don't know if this is great storytelling or bad storytelling. The moment where she has finally run away once and for all with him, and she has now told him that not only are they a couple, but when they get off this ship, mm-hmm. she's going with him. Yes. Their their life is about to set off. Their future is all ahead of them. I jokingly, sitting on my couch, yelled, Iceberg! Except guess what? It literally happens like 20 seconds later, Josh. Like, I I just thought I was being funny, kind of mocking the mechanics of the movie, that the moment they decide to be together forever Mm -hmm. is the exact moment when the iceberg strikes, but it really is the exact moment. (laughs) That is the level of subtlety we are dealing with here. Now, let me jump in and offer a defense after all that nitpicking of something that I know has been of great debate in the many years since. This, this is something I wasn't aware of, but I've seen it all over the internet in the many years since. Okay. Wasn't there room for Jack yeah. on that piece of floating wood? I am going to weigh in, Adam, and say, no, there was – I get it. I see how that all went down because the only reason Rose survived, from mm-hmm. what I could tell, is that she was the only one not in the water at all. She was on top of that 
I don't know if it's a headboard to a bed or whatever it is. I thought she went in for sure. She's in for a while. Okay. But when we see her, when that boat comes back and Mm -hmm. they're looking for survivors, she is the only one who's completely dry, essentially dry. And so my take is that if he had tried to crawl on top, it would have tipped over. They both would have been a little bit wet or something. That that was part of his sacrifice. Yes. And, And also giving him the life jacket. That's something people have complained about. That wouldn't have helped him. It was the cold that killed all the people there. It okay. wasn't. So I, yeah. I, I'm defending Cameron on that front. Okay. Well, that's good. And I will point out, I did not have a chance to read this today, but in Alyssa's Vox article, there is a paragraph where she says, yes, it's a behemoth of a movie with an arguably overstuffed runtime of three hours and 15 minutes. And yes, it's possible there was enough room on that floating door for Jack 2. But to me, these are minor matters. The film is either a masterpiece or something very close. So take that, Josh Larson. But I bring that up because those words, enough room on that floating door, those are hyperlinked. And they just link. I didn't click on it, but they link to a Slate article from 2017 that has the hyperlink. James Cameron says Titanic's Jack died because of art, not physics. So without reading that article, I'm guessing he's debunking the idea that if he had tried to get on it, it would have tipped over or something, which is, I think, basically what you said. Yeah. That's what I think watching yeah. it is that, that, yes, he's doing the smart move here. It's almost impossible to get on the first time. Another body trying to get on that thing is clearly going to tip it and going to defeat the entire purpose of putting her on it in the first place. Exactly. So good move. Jack. If you want to read more about it, though, <laughs> we'll link to that in our show notes, both Alyssa's article and that one over at Slate. OK, so we got to talk about Cameron just a little bit more here. And of course, just take all of this for whatever you want to take it for. This falls into that category, Josh, of not being able to unknow things outside of the viewing world that, you know, even if you really haven't spent any time in your life researching it. These are things you just pick up along the way. So you think about some of the things you touched on, Cameron's reputation as a director and the difficulty making this movie and even his past relationships. You can read about his marriage, his difficult marriage with Linda Hamilton from her perspective if you Google that. So you think about some of those relationships with past actresses and past women in his life. It's hard not to watch Titanic and think of it, at least it was for me, as a sort of personal confession or apology. And the question is whether it's a conscious one or a completely unconscious one, whether he is actually unburdening his soul or he is unwittingly showing us who he really is. And I'll give you the pandering feminist line in the movie or the one that that seems like it's a very pro-woman line but actually undercuts that completely. And it's when Old Rose says... A woman's heart is a deep ocean of secrets. Mm. And you can accept that either as a line only a wise woman would ever say or a line a stupid man would make a woman say. It's at once, oh, women are so complex and mysterious and we need to honor and recognize that. Or it's, you know, they're also impossible to really trust because of those deep secrets they harbor. I couldn't help but read it that way. But watching this film again and seeing how much fun Cameron has with the camera And in the editing, when Jack's on screen and he's showing us that sort of carefree adventurer type of lifestyle and how much time he spends showing us even his point of view, which you could criticize on one level, too, because this is supposed to be Rose's flashback. Clearly, there's a lot of stuff she wouldn't be privy to. Cameron's decided to open it up and show Jack's part of it as well. But I'm watching it and I'm seeing Cameron as the boss, as the Bill Paxton character with his crew, his adoring crew. 
and all of those expensive toys, plundering and exploiting this tragedy for his own riches and fame. And so when we hear that line, I never got it. That's that's Cameron, in a way, trying to assure us, hey, audience, it's okay. I get it now. Yeah, I was doing it, and I'm trying to make this spectacle, and I hope it makes millions and millions of dollars, but but I really get the importance and the, the weight of this story. I think he's also Mr. Andrews, the Victor Garber character, the, the man who actually designed Titanic, right? He's the craftsman. He's that designer. But maybe he's also showing us that he's Ismay, the guy with the grand vision for this grand spectacle, Titanic, just like the ship. And he's willing to have it built and he's willing to push ahead to see that vision through at all costs. Doesn't matter what consequences there are along the way. Of course, I do think he's also potentially that sweet adventurer, I said, like Jack, who wants to enable his actresses to achieve their greatness, to fulfill their dreams. And then maybe, just maybe, (laughs) he's Cal. He's Billy Zane, who can't understand why those actresses can't just stand where he tells them to stand and do what he wants them to do and say what he wants them to say. I feel like this is Cameron, as I said, wittingly or not, just letting his brain bleed out on the page. Well, as far as the feminism stuff goes, I didn't find it necessarily hypocritical based on what we see on the screen. I, I think it's just a really clumsy attempt to sell some of those ideas and and maybe this comes you know maybe this comes into play with what we talked about last week on the show with Black Panther where when you are trying to sell a story based on a particular identity how much it helps to have the person telling that story be of that identity. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe what we're seeing here is some of that clumsiness where uh, a person like Cameron could fully well believe in these feminist statements that Titanic is making, but because it's not coming naturally out of him, they come out as hokey, clumsy attempts. And, and the romance I find most convincing in the whole movie is between him and the submersible robot. So yeah, I, without that, a doubt. That's, no, that's when know. this thing really gets hot. <laughs> I might agree with you there. I do want to point out that that opening shot of Kate Winslet, when we first meet her in the car, that hat that's tilted to the side, it's an iconic shot now. And for a reason, there is something grandiose about it, something that immediately establishes Rose as a presence. And I do think that there are a number of shots like that in this movie that make this film the iconic film that everyone remembers it to be. Now, this review has gone on about as long as Titanic's running time. So we'll end there and wait for the feedback to flood in. Titanic is probably available anywhere you want to see it, certainly on DVD, Blu-ray, or on demand. If you do get a chance to revisit it and want to share your thoughts and want to tell Josh how much of a heartless romantic he is, I can't wait. Feedback at (laughs) filmspotting.net. How about we get to some other 90s films as we do talk film spotting madness when we come back. Stay with us. sent in drones and teams of people, but nothing comes back. 
But something has. You're a biologist. You served in the military. If I knew what happened, I could save his life. The boundary's getting bigger, it's expanding. We're talking cities, states. You need to know what's inside. So do I. That's the trailer for Alex Garland's Annihilation, starring Natalie Portman, Jennifer Jason Leigh, and Oscar Isaac. We're seeing Oscar Isaac back with Garland after so much success. Certainly, we felt that way on Ex Machina, one of our favorite films of 2015. Annihilation opens in wide release this weekend. Josh, it doesn't seem like it's getting much of a marketing push. Does that give you some concern? I guess I should be concerned by the fact that the press screening is a little later than usual That's here right. in Chicago, Wednesday night before opening mm-hmm. instead of, say, Monday or Tuesday. But, hey, we're still going to hold out. Hope for the best. Absolutely. Next week, we will have our review of Annihilation. Annihilation is one of the movies that we recently gave away passes for over at filmspotting.net. If you're in the Chicago area and you want that opportunity on occasion to see a movie in advance, See it before it opens, make all your friends jealous, and see it for free. You can do that if you visit filmspotting.net slash events. Here are a couple of upcoming screenings you might get to go to. I don't know if we needed a Death Wish remake, Adam, but we have one. Mm -hmm. It's starring Bruce Willis. It's directed by Eli Roth. I don't know if that makes it more or less appealing to you, but if listeners want to get Uh a chance to check it out early, they can do that. There's a Wednesday, February 28th screening at Chicago's AMC River East. We also have passes for The Leisure Seeker. This is the latest from director Paolo Verzi. He made 2013's Human Capital. This is a road trip movie starring Donald Sutherland and Helen Mirren in an RV. Of course. There you go. Yeah, that's March 1st at the AMC River East. And again, the address is filmspotting.net slash events. I saw 2013's Human Capital because it was part of the Chicago International Film Festival. And while the road and a car and an accident plays a key role in that movie, I would never anticipate that grave subject matter being directed by the same guy who's now giving us a road trip movie with Donald Sutherland and Helen Mirren. But If you are curious about The Leisure Seeker, we do have those passes to give away now. We also want to promote our new Vincent Minnelli Marathon. Six movies. We're starting with 1943's Cabin in the Sky. Michael Phillips is going to join us for that marathon, the first movie in it, and also the last. He's going to share his expertise, his perspective on Minnelli, one of his favorite filmmakers, and that full lineup can be found at filmspotting.net slash marathons. Now... Let's get to the madness. We've been talking about the fourth annual Film Spotting Madness Tournament that will get underway officially next week. This year, our tournament is the best of the 1990s. And we do have some voting going on right now. It's currently for nine play-in polls that will help us determine the final round of 64. And I just got curious last night. There aren't a lot of votes in yet. I posted a poll that asked listeners on that Film Spotting Madness page, filmspotting.net slash madness. How many of these movies have you seen? I was curious because there are actually 73 total if you count all the play-ins. Right. You've looked at that list. How many have you seen, Josh? Oh, I haven't done the count. You haven't? I, I, I have no idea. I mean, they're all, I think, the vast majority of them. Yeah, you I'm guys, sure you've you guys seen the vast majority. You guys didn't go wild with what to include. Well, I've seen all 73. Yeah, I'm assuming I'm right around there. Okay, I think you are probably at 71, 72. At the least, we put it up. And so far, again, voting is very early, but I've been maybe a little bit surprised, just a tiny bit surprised. I'm looking at it now, refreshing. Five people have said, all of them, I rule. And then it's pretty evenly split. It's about equal 
the rest of the options. So whether it's 67 to 72 of them, 60 to 66, 53 to 59, on down to 37 to 44, or less than half, those are all about equal. So there are some listeners out there with Film Spotting Madness about to be upon us who have seen less than half of these movies. They've got some homework to do, and that's part of the fun of Film Spotting Madness. Could be a generational thing. You know, this was the 90s were right in the heart, I think, for both of us of intensely getting into film. At the end of the decade, I had started writing professionally about film, so I was really getting into movies just at this time. It makes sense I would see the vast majority of them. If you have younger listeners, Mm -hmm. maybe they do have some catch-up to do. So a couple of thoughts from our listeners as we are set to play Film Spotting Madness. We heard from James Hawes in Montreal, Quebec. I was born in 1970, the sweet spot of Generation X. My love of film came early. I hold fond memories of birthday party lunches held in McDonaldland Playground before my friends and I would go and see E.T. or Star Wars or the Apple Dumpling Gang. Side note, has this movie been wiped off the face of the earth? Hitting my 20s deep into my college years, where, like Adam, I was an English major, I officially became a cinephile. And what a decade for a budding movie lover to gestate. Looking at your list, I was overcome with nostalgia for long nights in dimly lit taverns discussing Jarmusch, Tarantino, Wong Kar Wai, The Greatness of L.A. Confidential, Who Shot Nice Guy Eddie, and what it would be like to actually listen to the Eyes Wide Shut soundtrack all over sour apple teenies, Long Island iced teas, and whiskey smashes. The 90s were strange times for cocktails. The warm, fuzzy nostalgia was soon replaced with bitter dread. I realized I own about 80 to 90 percent of these films on DVD or Blu-ray. We Gen Xers are stalwart physical copy adopters, and I have a serious DVD addiction. The idea of even symbolically having to decide between Rushmore and Boogie Nights or Chunking Express and Train Spotting that would actually be a really good matchup, damn it, is like my Sophie's Choice. Don't make me do it, okay? I'll do it. Long live the madness. So that's it. Thank you, James. Obviously, he's excited. We know there are other listeners out there like James who are excited and they are ready for the insanity to begin. On the other side of this, Josh, there are some listeners like Michael in Chicago who aren't quite as prime. Michael says, hi, Josh, Adam, and the rest of the crew. I'm a big fan of your show and generally a fan of each of your approaches and takes on film. So I'm sorry to write with a rare, serious criticism. I hate film spotting madness. Further, I think it goes against some of the best things about your show. As polls tend to go, anything already beloved and widely watched has an immediate advantage. This is the exact opposite of what your golden brick does. And each year, I love discussions of the golden brick. Take, for example, your director's bracket a few years ago. After round one, there were no women left in the bracket. And after round two, there were no foreign directors left. Seeing the likes of Wong Kar Wai, Kelly Reichert, and Abbas Kiristami drop off was painful, not just because I thought they deserved great praise, but because I thought they would get more praise if more people saw their works. Independent films fare badly, and so do the actors and actresses working in that space. Without a doubt, your skill at discussing the subject matter will make for some good listening. Unfortunately, the mechanics of it will lead to heaping praise on the already established, beloved, and widely seen artists, potentially neglecting those who deserve more praise than they'll get by any writers or podcasters with your reach. Well, Michael, you realize what you just did. You gave... Adam and Sam, an idea for Film Spotting Madness 2021. Which is what? Golden Brick Edition. <laughs> we may get there. So. Actually, we may get there someday. I do want to say, I, I'm not shocked by Michael's comments, and I wouldn't say that he is necessarily wrong, but Sam and I were discussing this, and the reality is the thing he wants to achieve is one of the same things we hope to achieve with Film Spotting Madness. Yes, some of those lesser known, lesser praised, lesser seen films and directors may not make it past the first round, but just the fact that they're in madness at all and they are going to get discussed. And in some cases, we're going to tell our listeners how wrong they were for voting for the other movie instead. 
that hopefully is doing a service. I can tell you right now, this goes back to that poll question we were just talking about. Some of these people haven't seen half of these films. If Madness encourages them to see that other half, that's great. Sam, our producer, saw Close Up, the Kiristami movie, and saw Kieslowski's Red, both movies he loved, all because of this list. So maybe Kislovsky, maybe Kiristami don't make it past round one, but hopefully just being here, as I said, will encourage people to see those movies. There you go. And Michael, maybe you could take some consolation in our top five this week too, which is going to be, I expect, lists full of what we're calling overlooked or underappreciated movies from that decade. I don't know if they'll hit some of the titles you're expressly concerned mm-hmm. about, but they're certainly not going to be the popular juggernauts that Madness has at the top of the bracket. So you've got Kiristami, Taste of Cherry at number one, Double Life of Veronique at number two. I do have a question about how Wong Kar Wai, Days our, of Being Wild, number three. Well, our contemporary Iranian cinema marathon could have filled out a number of these slots. So no, I didn't put those in there, but I was going to ask about that. Oh man, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Somehow I completely we overlooked. We have close up. We have close up, as you just mentioned, we do, in the bracket. But there's like four others. There we was another had. movie from that marathon that's in my top yeah. 20 of all time. Yeah. And is certainly overlooked. And I overlooked it for the overlooked top five. Thanks, Josh. Well, we'll we'll mention mm. them as honorable mentions, and then Michael will be completely mm-hmm. happy with Film Spotty Madness. Back to those play and polls for a second. They are available now, those nine poll questions. You get to decide which nine movies will get into the final sixty-four. But we do have, Josh, for the first time ever. An eligibility issue. Oh, no. The selection committee has had to rule (laughs) on this. It concerns our main character mortality matchup, as I dubbed it. We had Jim Jarmusch's Dead Man Mm -hmm. squaring off against Sofia Coppola's The Virgin Suicide. What's the issue? Dennis will explain. He says, hi, guys. Sorry to be a pedant, but I think there is a question as to Virgin Suicide's eligibility for this year's bracket. While IMDb labels it a 1999 release, that was the year in which it premiered at Cannes. It played Sundance nearly a year later in January 2000 and had its official U.S. release in April 2000. Is the bracket placement based on international premiere, release date and country of origin, U.S. release date or something else? To be clear. This is not a demented men's rights activist rant. I've been a fan of Coppola's work since her short Lick the Star was on regular rotation in the early days of IFC. I also feel that both Virgin Suicides and especially Lost in Translation are bracket worthy. I just believe that they rightfully belong in the 2000s bracket. I'm merely doing my part to protect the integrity of film spotting madness. Cheers and thanks for the hundreds of hours of listening pleasure. Sharp. I, Dennis, the He's last right. thing we need is the NCAA coming down on yeah. us. I don't know what's going on in that <laughs> I just don't room. want Sam to come down come on us. Come <laughs> on. What are we going to do about this? Well, we did kick around. Do we throw in an alternative? Do we do the poll over again? And really, it just seems to make the most sense to let Dead Man advance. It's a technicality, but it's going to advance. And then the fact will be, Josh, that the Virgin Suicides is going to be part of our 2000s bracket next year. Lost in Translation almost surely will be as well. So it would be different if we weren't already planning to do the 2000s bracket, but we are. That's our plan for 2019. So this movie and Coppola is going to get her love, and I don't feel that bad about it. Fair enough. I concur with the ruling, mostly because I was going to vote for Dead Man anyway. (laughs) We did both vote for Dead Man. This will not make Sofia Coppola fans happy, though, when I say that Virgin Suicides was running away with it. Mm running away with it. 
but Dead Man is going to advance on the technicality. So we're not going to get into all of those matchups here, but we wanted to highlight a couple that are our closest, Josh, starting with the war satire matchup. So that is between David O. Russell's Three Kings and Paul Verhoeven's Starship Troopers. As of right now, it looks like Kings is in the lead by 10 votes. Troopers has spent time in the lead, so a comeback does seem within the realm of possibility. We heard from David Hoffman in Queens on this one. It's been a while since I've seen either of these, so I have to choose by remembering my initial reactions. I enjoyed Three Kings, but Starship Troopers blew my mind. I remember going around for weeks trying to convince people to watch it by saying things like, you don't understand. It's like a sci-fi World War II movie, but we're the Nazis. In fairness, I was 19 at the time. I think 19-year-old versions of us are going to be doing a fair amount of the voting during this year's Film Spotting Madness, so that's okay with us, David. The other one that has been hotly contested is the smart high school comedy matchup, and Brett Merriman out there is... He's just shaking his head so hard. I can hear it all the way from L.A. I can hear it right now. Election versus Clueless. Election, his beloved election, is only ahead right now by 11 votes. And there was a time, there have been times throughout the voting so far, where Clueless has been in the lead. This is the election is the one that he argued should be in this plan. Yeah, he thought it was absurd that election should even be a plan. It just should be in there. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, and, and yet here I agree with his thinking that it deserved to be in this plan, but I voted against it. I know, and I did too, Clueless. so he's going to hate me now. We heard from Matt Johnson who said, election going toe-to-toe with Clueless as if. And Tom Morris who says, election is the sequel to Ferris Bueller after he faked his death to hide from Ed Rooney. Pick flick. Nice stuff. I haven't heard that theory before. Thank you, Tom, for that. So the other matchups, we do have Toy Story versus Toy Story 2. We have Kislovsky's Blue versus Red. Altman's The Player versus Shortcuts. Tim Burton's Edward Scissorhands versus Ed Wood. Our Hitman matchup, Leon the Professional versus Hardboiled. And Titanic, Josh, I think last week... Didn't Ooh. last week you say Titanic was getting your vote? No, 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 no. Last week I said I I'm holding swore. off until mm. I watch Titanic again, which I have done. And Titanic is not getting my vote. Mm. Jurassic Park all the way. Titanic keeping my vote. You can vote now in all those plan matchups at filmspotting.net slash madness. Or you can find a link right there on the main page of filmspotting.net. And next week, with your help, we'll announce the final round of 64. All right. Will your pet 1990s film be listed among our picks for the most overlooked movies of that decade? The Film Spotting Top 5 is next. Stay with us. been a little while since we've been able to fit in donations and our thank yous to our listeners who have been so generous as to donate some of their hard-earned cash our way in support of the show. I think we're going to highlight three new listener donors this week, starting with Luke Judd in Geelong, Australia. What do you think? I'm going to say Geelong. Okay. 
were probably both incorrect. I've been listening to Film Spotting for years now and was fortunate enough to have my thoughts on the films of 1993 shared back on episode 461 with Short Term 12 when I made a small donation. Unfortunately, I'm ashamed to admit that was my last donation to date, but happy to say that won't be a problem any longer as I've now signed up to become a recurring contributor. Having started with a top 10 of 2010 episode after a random iTunes search, I was instantly hooked and have worked my way through almost the entire back catalog. I'd like to thank you both, as well as Michael, Sam, Maddie, Candice, Golden Joe, and whoever else that I have overlooked for the effort and time that you have given to consistently produce such quality content. One of my favorite elements of seeing a new film is knowing that I then have an insightful, incisive, illuminating conversation to fall back on, which inevitably either helps me clarify my thoughts or opens my eyes to themes and meaning that I completely overlooked. I appreciate the critical eye that you and your show brings to the fore, never denigrating the intention or craft, always seeking to find the value in any piece of art. The way that I watch film has changed since I listened to your podcast, for which I will always remain thankful. But so is my appreciation for how to respectfully disagree without sinking to slander and how to actually listen to and consider a differing opinion, with the only objective being to better myself and my understanding. Luke, do you have any advice for me? <laughs> what, what show is he talking about? I know. I became a father for the first time on New Year's Day, welcoming a baby girl, Quinn, and haven't been able to see as many films lately. Thankfully, I have film spotting to vicariously live through, and I'm grateful every time I fire up the podcast. Well, thank you, Luke, so much for those kind words, and congratulations on the baby girl. That's so exciting. I love the name Quinn. I have a child named Quinn, a boy, actually middle name, but we always knew we were going to call him Quinn, and if Quinn had been a girl, well she would have been Quinn as well. We were going to go with Quinn always as the middle name, just with a different first name. So I am right there supporting you on that great choice. And again, we appreciate your support of the show. We have a new Silver Club donor, Mike Jabor, who, guess what? He's from Australia too. He says, good day, Adam and Josh, all the way from Melbourne, Australia. Oh, okay. I, I thought you were just saying that because he said good day. That was kind of presumptuous. It was. But he but does no, identify he's from there. Okay. Towards the end of last year, I had a wonderful road trip through the U.S. And what better way to enjoy traveling across your fine country than with catching up with film spotting shows? In any case, I have a little bit of spare U.S. dollars left over from the trip. And it's about 12 months since my last donation. And the exchange rate still looks rather favorable. So time for me to pay my dues. It all came together for it us. It did. It worked <laughs> out perfectly for us. Mike did include some notes about the Oscars. Says that he is most focused on the best cinematography photography race Hoyte van Hoytema for Dunkirk, which Mike says is some of the most amazing photography I'd ever seen in the cinema, particularly the ending. But he's also rooting for Roger Deakins. Blade Runner 2049 looks utterly stunning and is a big reason why the film is so effective, even if I didn't quite like it as much as I did with Dunkirk. Thank you for the comments. Thank you for the Silver Club level donation. And we close with a new Buck a Show donor and some great words from Nathaniel in South Bend, Indiana. I'm sending a follow-up note to my now annual donation. Last year at this time, I had just started going through your back catalog. Sam was about to get married, and the two of you were still sparring over the lake house. Yep. Now I've just completed Maddie's run on the show and have been listening to a slew of amazing guest co-hosts, including the always incisive Tasha Robinson, the first-time terrific Chris Klemek, and the curmudgeonly but always delightful and brilliant Michael Phillips. Among these great guest hosts, a young Josh Larson, joining Adam to discuss Martha Marcy May Marlene. I'm not going to lie, Josh, you can hear a slight nervous tremolo in your voice in those opening minutes. But then you start getting into the nitty-gritty of the film, and then you drop these amazing picks for your top five gonzo characters. Roger Rabbit is a truly deeply inspired choice. And by episode's end, it was overwhelmingly clear who should become the heir apparent. 
All of which is to say, I'm thrilled to have finally reached the Josh Larson era of film spotting. Can we officially dub it film spotting JLE? No. I also know this means <laughs> film spotting SVU is just around the bend. And I'm excited to add Matt and Allison to my regular podcast rotation. Their smart, goofy banter during their own stints as guest hosts has already been a highlight of the 2011 run of episodes. This is quite the time capsule. Here, we're just going back. He's covering it all. He is. Nathaniel goes on to say that the other big change since last year's donation is he now sports his own film spotting T-shirt. Thanks to his lovely wife, who got it for me as a Christmas present. That may seem fairly insignificant, but given how much I bring up Adam and Josh in our daily conversations, you guys might as well be the other woman of our relationship. Can't wait for film spotting madness, guys, and happy nearly 13 years. Thanks for all you do. He also thanked us for turning him on to Letterboxd. He says, I haven't been bold enough to comment on anything the two of you have posted, but it really does feel like bonus content for the show, and I love the space it provides to review the films its users have logged, which pushes me to do the writing about a film that I wish I was doing more actively anyway. That's the very reason why I probably have only logged into Letterboxd three times in the past three weeks, because it just shames me for all the writing I'm not doing. That's really kind of you, Nathaniel, those words. You know, I'm just glad when I don't scare people away. So, you know, to hear that sort yeah. of stuff. No, I remember that very well. It seems like just yesterday. A young but older than me, Josh Larson, (laughs) was sitting across from me, taking on shame. And every time a guest host sat down, you wondered, what's going to happen? What's going to happen when we actually have to dive into a movie? I have to say it, it did work right away. I don't know why, but it did. And here we are. Been trying to keep it up ever since. Yes, we have. Hey guys, this is Chris Gallagher from the War Starts Midnight podcast with a bit of feedback for your 90s overlooked and underappreciated top five lists. Lately on our show, we've been exploring director John Carpenter's entire filmography, and I've got a pick from his catalog that definitely fits the bill here. When most folks think of Carpenter, it's typically his films from the 70s and 80s that come to mind, be it the horror classics, the siege pictures, or maybe his frequent collaborations with Kurt Russell. But most don't realize he made an unsung masterpiece deep in the heart of the 1990s. Like so many of John Carpenter's classics, critics, audiences, and even the film's own studio largely dismissed In the Mouth of Madness when it was initially released in 1995. But make no mistake, this is Carpenter at the peak of his craft, with all of his trademarks on display, from the film's ever-present creeping terror to the incredible practical effects work and even a great original score composed by the master himself. In the Mouth of Madness combines pulp, horror, and noir influences with the terrifying tones of H.P. Lovecraft to create a truly infectious metacinematic experience that has garnered a respectable cult following, but still remains criminally overlooked by mainstream audiences today. It's probably Carpenter's last truly great film, and it deserves a place on his mantle of masterpieces right next to the likes of Halloween, The Thing, and Assault on Precinct 13. Love the show, guys, and I can't wait to hear your picks. Thank you, Chris, for that great voicemail that I think does get right to the heart of the goal with this top five. Overlooked 90s movies. We're thinking about film spotting madness. Some of the movies that were left out of R64 and are maybe left out of the collective imagination when people really think back on the best films of that year. And that movie, In the Mouth of Madness by John Carpenter, so overlooked that I've never seen it have not seen it either. So, I will add it to my Carpenter catch-up list, yes. which I need to get to. You do indeed. We will get to some more listener submissions for this top five in a moment as we get into our picks, but maybe set it up a little bit, Josh, for our listeners, how you approached it. I can tell you that the math part for me was simply taking those 64 movies, those 73 actually, with the plans, ruled those out, and then I did look at those various lists that helped 
us kind of form the film spotting madness shortlist. It was a slant top 100 of the 90s, Rolling Stone top 100 of the 90s, Pace did their top 90, AV Club did their top 50, and then Flickchart, the website that's more about popularity, really, how many people have seen and loved these movies, they had their top 100 as well. I somehow missed IndieWire's top 50 of the 90s, or that would have been even more math to put in the equation. But I looked at all those lists, and for me, at most, it could only make one of those lists. If it was on more than one, it was not eligible. How did you do it? So I looked at the spreadsheet. You sent me a key to the spreadsheet. I did. That was also helpful. I mean, you're talking You're talking to another English major here who I think a few shows back you mentioned how you didn't take a science class. No. In college. And one math class. I managed to not have to take a math class okay. throughout college. So I now feel like I've taken that college math <laughs> class. And what I ended up doing is, yes, I selected films that were not included in Madness. Any of the 74? 73. 73. None of those. Also... None of my picks appeared on the Rolling Stone 100. Uh-huh. None of them appeared on the AV Club Top 50. Okay. That's as deep so as very I went. Similar. So I think in, we took a generally yes. similar approach. All right. Get us started. Okay. That left me with a film called The Witches, which is a previous Top 5 lister, children's book adaptations. I did that list with Trisha Bobita of the Nerdette podcast. We were reviewing Steven Spielberg's The BFG at the time. The Witches was overlooked by me until I put that list together, actually. I wasn't even aware of it when it came out in 1990 and didn't bother to catch up with it until I made that list for The BFG. This is another Roald Dahl adaptation from director Nicholas Rogue, and it's about a boy staying at a hotel where there is a convention of witches going on. Now, taking a cue from Dahl's work, this movie could care less about kids' delicate sensibilities. This is really creepy, never more so than when Angelica Houston as the Grand High Witch rips off her face to reveal her true self and order loyalty from her followers. Witches of England. Your disgrace, miserable witches, your good-for-nothing worms. Everywhere I look, I see the repulsive sight of hundreds, thousands of revolting little children. You were, like me, a doll fan and a fan of kids' flicks who somehow never got around to Nicholas Rogue's The Witches. Do yourself a favor, catch up with it, maybe even watch it with some kids, but make sure they're pretty brave ones. Yeah, that's one I need to see as well. So my number five overlooked 90s movie is a movie that I've tried to give a little bit of love to over the years here on the show. Actually, way, way back when Sam and I were doing the show in 2005, episodes eight and nine, we did just an Overlook Movies top five. This was on the list, and it was a few years back, my number three movie of 1992. I said that if you like Blood Simple and Fargo, and a simple plan, and you haven't seen this, then you had to. Any guesses on what movie I'm going with? Last Seduction. No, I'm actually going with is One False Move. Is, yeah, it's probably. Last Seduction, I, okay. I think Last Seduction is oh, a 90s movie. One False movie Move is good, too. And a good pick. But yeah, I went with the Carl Franklin film that I believe is his feature debut. He had just been making some B-movies with Roger Corman before he made this film, written by Billy Bob Thornton. It was his first screenplay, co-written with Tom Epperson, who he has collaborated with now on subsequent films. Billy Bob Thornton also stars in the movie. This is pre-Sling Blade, so no one knew who he was as a writer or as an actor. And I think I was thinking about One False Move so much because of Bill Paxton after watching Titanic. He is so good here as a sheriff 
who is named Dale Hurricane Dixon, and he is the sheriff of Star City, Arkansas. And after a bunch of bloody events that take place in L.A., Billy Bob Thornton, the other criminal that he is connected to named Pluto, played by Michael Beach, and then a woman named Fantasia, played by Cinda Williams, they end up heading towards Star City. And Bill Paxton and some of the other investigators know they're coming, and it's a matter of then what's going to happen when the bad guys do show up. I think that if I actually did have a chance to rewatch this movie, and I've only seen clips of it since I saw it originally, it wasn't in 92, it was in the late 90s actually when I saw it because it was recommended to me by many cinephiles, it will probably look like a pretty low-budget 90s movie, early 90s movie, which it is. But I do think that Paxton's good old boy charisma is something that's timeless. Michael Beach, who you will recognize probably from other 80s and 90s movies, even if you don't know the name, his low-key take on a sociopath is also terrifying and timeless. And I think Franklin, who went on to make Devil in a Blue Dress, another movie I love from the 90s and several other pictures, he manages to make something that isn't gratuitously violent or sleazy, but pulpy in the right way. It never tries to be anything more or less than it is. It is a movie about real people. Some are decent and in over their heads, and some are a lot less decent. This is a film like many. There are at least a handful, I can think of anyway, from the 90s. And from the 80s, where if it wasn't for Siskel and Ebert or one of them, it never would have had an audience. It was a little film. It was basically going to go to video. And they saw it somewhere and loved it and talked about it so much on their show and in print that it ended up becoming a relative hit. Ebert had it as his number two movie of 92 and Siskel actually had it at number one. So absolutely worth seeking out if you haven't seen One False Move. I do remember their support for the film. I'm sure that's how I heard about it, too. And you mentioned, you described it as pulpy, which I think is correct. I wonder if this has become overlooked or somewhat forgotten because Siskel Niebuhr did make it a big deal at the time Mm -hmm. because two years later, Pulp Fiction comes and completely changes our understanding of how a pulpy genre film looks and Mm. moves and sounds and talks. Not to say one is better than the other, but it was kind of like a watershed change at that moment. And this seems quaint almost. Exactly. Suddenly might have seemed so Hmm. quaint, but it is absolutely a really strong film. My number four is Holy Smoke. And I'm plucking from another previous top five list of mine here where I paired Holy Smoke with another Jane Campion film, Sweetie, for our top five teen girl movies directed by women. That was on show 613. We did that in December of 2016. I like Holy Smoke for this show because it also features Kate Winslet. And this is about two years after her Titanic breakout. It almost seems to me like a concentrated effort on her part to counter that stereotypical sentimentalism of her part in Titanic and and really to dig into a grittier form of feminism. She plays Ruth, a young Australian woman who falls under the sway of a guru while traveling to India. Her family back home tricks her to return, and once she gets there, they put her in the hands of an American exit counselor who's supposed to straighten her out. He's played by Harvey Keitel. Now, Keitel's character, he very much equates the authority he has with sexual power. He doesn't directly initially wield that in his sessions with Ruth, but it's absolutely a part of who he is. 
It's Ruth, however, who brings sexuality into their dynamic. And when she does that, the power shifts sort of in her favor, but also kind of upends the whole thing for both of them. So this is difficult and disarming like the best of Campion can be. And I do think it deserves more attention alongside some of her more acclaimed work like The Piano, which I think people think of first when it comes to her. Mm -hmm. The Piano, part of Film Spotting Madness, the only Jane Campion film that is. My number four is a movie from 1998 that I was just searching your archive, Josh, to see if you had possibly seen and reviewed this movie. And so far, I am finding that you don't have a review. I don't know what that means. Maybe you overlooked it. It is The Opposite of Sex. Another directing debut, Don Roos is the director. It stars Christina Ricci. She's a promiscuous teen from Louisiana, and her father dies, so she takes off, heads to Indiana, where Martin Donovan plays her gay half-brother. I don't think I did see this. I know what you're talking about, but I can't I remember seeing it on video in the year or two after it came out, and... She goes, causes a lot of issues as she meets up with that brother who has this younger boyfriend and Dee Dee, that's the Ricci character's name. She can't stop herself from trying to seduce that new boyfriend, Lisa Kudrow. This for her was a big breakout role. A lot of people talked about because it was Phoebe really in her first, I think, movie role or at least her first notable starring role playing a character very much the opposite of Phoebe. Speaking of quaint, this is a movie that if I watched it now – I could have that reaction to it where I was so blown away at the time in 98, 99 by the meta approach to it by Roos where he acknowledges right from the opening narration that it is a movie, that it has a narrator, that it has someone who is telling the story and may not be all that reliable. I think the quote we get is something like, if you don't like movies where some unseen person talks to you the whole time, then you're out of luck. And then there are other moments throughout the movie where at key times, Dee Dee's voice pops up and she tells you things like, the part where I take the gun is like, duh, important. And what'd you think? I'd be the dead one. I'm the effing narrator, guys. Keep up. So maybe now, 20 years later, we've seen so many movies. And of course, we've seen so many films that have played with those kind of conventions, going back to Close Up and those Iranian films that we love so much from our marathon, that do it arguably, I'm just going to say arguably, potentially in a more sophisticated way. I don't know. Without revisiting it, this movie might seem like a little less of an achievement. But I know in 98, I thought it was very smart and funny and a movie that managed to take a variety of different tones. The gun I mentioned, there's a thriller, a little bit of an aspect to it or a crime aspect mixed with this coming-of-age tale, then with this family drama. And I thought it felt like something fresh and new at the time to me anyway. Kudrow did get some accolades for it. The Chicago Film Critics Association back in 99, we were not members then. At least I wasn't, Josh. I don't know about you in 99. Gave Kudrow Best Supporting Actress and Ricci got a Golden Globe nomination for Best Performance by an Actress in a Comedy or Musical. But otherwise, it's hard to find any writing about this movie. It's hard really to find any clips about it online. You haven't seen it. I don't know a lot of people that have even seen it, much less like the movie. Yeah, and Don Roos, a name that has sort of fallen away, but then checking while you're talking here and speaking of Kudrow, I remember now, yes, he did reteam with her for the TV series Web Therapy, which I know oh, was, I didn't yeah. see myself, but really well received. And so. was it Bounce that he made? That he was did. the opportunity nice. he got. Yeah, the big opportunity there, yes. after this that didn't quite Good pan recall. Out. Yeah, thanks. 
<laughs> All right. My number three is Get on the Bus. This is an underrated Spike Lee film from 1996. It follows about 15 African-American men, each of whom has a very different background and personal story, who go on a road trip to the Million Man March in Washington, D.C. That took place in 95. So this was a really quick turnaround project for Lee. I think it's one of his funniest films. There are some good OJ jokes here, a lot of raucous, impromptu music numbers. But it is also, of course, given that it's Lee and this subject matter, deeply political. You know something? If y'all ready to quit your apathetic and unsympathetic ways as I am, and I mean take back control of the black community as I am, I mean if you're ready to stop being the boys that started to Washington on this bus and be, you know, the men, the men that our wives and our mothers and our children are waiting for back home and, you know, and stand up against all the evils lined up against the black man back home and just say, you know, we're, we're tired of this shit and we ain't gonna take it anymore. Get on the Bus wasn't overlooked by Roger Ebert, another mention of him here on our list. He gave it four stars. He said this, I have always felt Lee exhibits a particular quality of fairness in his films. He doesn't have heroes and villains. He shows something bad, racism, that in countless ways clouds all of our thinking. Get on the Bus is fair in the same sense. It is more concerned with showing how things are than with scoring cheap rhetorical points. I think that's what gets Lee into trouble so often is that people misconstrue the reality he's depicting, this picture he's offering of the way the often dramatic and diametrically opposed things are. And they take that as his personal take mm -hmm. on things. And Get on the Bus, more than most of his films, shows how broad of a canvas he can paint for us, how many different perspectives here, even within the black experience, there are and the conflict that arises out of that. And uh, because of it, I think that this is one of his films that also gives us the most to grapple with. So not mentioned all that often among Lee's best work, but for me, Get on the Bus is up there. Yeah, and Spike Lee has to be one of those filmmakers that when you think of the 90s, you think of Lee and Malcolm X is in our film spotting badness bracket. For me, Get on the Bus is more minor Lee. And of course, there are lots of achievements we could reckon with, but I did consider Jungle Fever for this list and also Crooklyn. So there are a lot of options from the 90s and Spike Lee. For my top three here, we're going to get to some movies that it occurred to me as I was jotting down some notes about them are formative movies in different ways. They hit me at certain points in my budding cinephilia that probably allowed them to have greater impact than they might have otherwise, which isn't to say that they aren't films that would still have that impact today on me or anybody else who watches them. And I'm going to start with the Merchant Ivory production, The Remains of the Day, oh, yeah. a movie starring Anthony Hopkins, Emma Thompson, that I think is smart, sophisticated, and somehow, despite the fact that there is no nudity and barely even any physical intimacy, sexy as hell. And only paste of all those different sources I mentioned off the top, AV Club, Rolling Stone, Slant, IndieWire, I think even, Paste was the only one who had it on their list. They had it at number 51 out of 90. But everyone else chose to leave it off. I had it as my number two film of 1993. Listeners, of course, will recognize that Kazuo Ishiguro wrote the source material novel, also wrote one of my favorite films that 
I think I could argue has been a little bit overlooked over the years, Never Let Me Go. When I featured it as one of my top films of 93, I played that racy book scene that I love so much, speaking of the the lack of physical intimacy and yet how sexy it is, where Anthony Hopkins is in his office, I think, and Emma Thompson is determined to read or to see what book he's reading as if it's maybe scandalous because he won't share it with her. And she gets closer and closer and closer to the point where he's almost like a boy cowering in the corner. But the fact that they're just as close to each other as they are just imbues it with a certain sensuality. He's paralyzed by her, by being so close to her, and you're you're waiting for something to happen. There has been this, this gestating passion that just doesn't really come to fruition. That's a great scene, but Josh, it's even just in the banter, where Emma Thompson's Miss Kenton is a character who is willing to confront Hopkins, Mr. Stevens, this longtime butler, and is someone who, in subtle ways and then in ways that are not subtle at all, manages to undercut this this armor that he has put up, that he thinks he has to have in this role as the dutiful butler. And it's set in World War II, even though that is just this backdrop that we only hear people kind of talking about, which is another thing I actually really love about the movie. And I was thinking about Remains of the Day almost as the anti-Titanic in the sense that it's this romance, even though it's a very different type of romance than what we have with Jack and Rose. And that romance plays out in Titanic against this huge event, albeit a singular historic event, but this tragedy. And then Remains of the Day has this all playing out all off screen. World War II looming, the entire country of England and Europe as a whole is in this state of panic, and we only get it kind of seeping into the seams of this house. So it just gives the whole film a weight beyond the romance that's at its core, and yet that romance or that repressed romance is what really makes Remains of the Day such an achievement. Good morning. Good morning, Mrs. Stevens. Um... Yes, his lordship asked about the Jewish girls. Elsa and Irma? Yes, he wondered where they were. He said it was wrong to dismiss them. I thought you'd like to know because I remember you were as distressed as I was about it. As you were? As I recall, you thought it was only right and proper that they should be sent packing. Now, really, Miss Kenton, that is most unfair. Of course I was upset, very much so. I don't like to see that sort of thing happening in this house. Well, I wish you'd told me so at the time. It would have helped me a great deal if I'd known you felt the same way as I did. Why? Why, Mr. Stevens? Why do you always have to hide what you feel? Really surprised that Remains of the Day is off of those lists. Mm-hmm. This thing got eight yep. Oscar It was a big prestige thing at the it time. It really was, but, yeah, but you don't nobody hear, talks about it. No, not so much anymore. Okay, looking at my list, the number two slot goes to James and the Giant Peach. So after directing 1993's The Nightmare Before Christmas, criminally excluded from film spotting madness, Adam, I have to take issue with that even though I can't because Hmm. I didn't put any work into compiling it, Henry Selleck the director of Nightmare, went on to make James and the Giant Peach, another stop-motion adaptation of, yes, another Roald Dahl novel. I'm doubling down on the doll here. In this one, an orphan boy finds himself inside a magically enlarged peach accompanied by giant talking insects. It also floats and eventually flies across the ocean from England to New York City. Now, stop motion is really the perfect way to detail all of this, especially under the direction of someone like Selleck, from the spider's delicately gloved legs to the flurry flesh of the peach. When you watch this movie, it feels like you're looking through a giant Viewmaster. Also, 
there are some lovely songs by none other than Randy Newman. Take a little time, just look at where we are. We've come very, very far together. And if I might say so, and if I might say so too, we wouldn't have got anywhere if it weren't for you, boy. Love is the sweetest thing. Love never comes just when you think it will. I love that Burton and Selleck and a few others, Wes Anderson with Fantastic Mr. Fox and this year's Isle of Dogs, also films like The Box Trolls from Laika, They've kept stop motion alive for contemporary moviegoers. It's still a vital art form on the big screen right now. James and the Giant Peach, though, it's not talked about as much as some of those movies, but Mm -hmm. really does deserve to be remembered alongside them. My number two overlooked movie of the 90s. Can't believe it, but it only made one of those lists, and at number 91, no less, John Sayles, Lone Star, from 1996. Not part of Madness, John Sayles, despite my love for... Lone Star, and my appreciation for Passion Fish, The Secret of Rowan Inish, Limbo, very good films, and he had other very good films, City of Hope, during the 1990s. I do think of him as one of those 1990s directors, certainly because of his importance on the American independent movie scene. And the formative aspect here, I think, was just seeing this movie all through college. I've been getting more and more into cinema, thinking about it being something I want to do in some form for a career. And I remember driving from Grinnell an hour to Des Moines to go to the one little art house cinema to see Lone Star, because I'd been hearing about this John Sayles guy and this movie that was getting some buzz. Matthew McConaughey was in it. A Time to Kill had just come out. That was his big breakthrough movie. Actually, technically released, I think, if I was looking at the dates right today, after Lone Star. But because it took so long to get Lone Star in Iowa, we saw A Time to Kill first. And I remember thinking, he's a pretty magnetic presence. This movie's not very good, but he's pretty interesting. And then you see him in this much smaller role, yet pivotal role, as Buddy Deeds in the flashbacks in Lone Star. And you get to discover Chris Cooper. That's where I finally saw him as an actor for the first time, one of Sales' regulars. And this is another film that, kind of like Titanic and Remains of the Day, you could argue is a romance that's set against this historical backdrop and a certain past that can't be shaken. You've got... Chris Cooper playing the son of that Sheriff Buddy Deeds, now Sam Deeds, and he is trying to reconcile some of the new things he's learning about his father and what type of sheriff and what type of man that he may have been. There's a great mystery at the core of Lone Star that has always fascinated me, and the way Sales, I've talked about this before when this movie has come up, but the way he drifts in and out of the past using some great subtle but graceful camera tricks to take us right from a present-day scene into the past version of that scene or the remembrance of that is really wonderful. And it feels like a movie that we need right now. It's set in this border town in Texas where everybody is trying their best to keep these lines drawn between the good and the bad people. And usually that's the difference between the white people and the non-white people. And sales, that's been a recurring theme for him. But just that idea, I think that sales always really explores in the right way of people trying to reconcile their past and also trying to reconcile what kind of person they are 
what kind of man they are, what does define someone as a good or bad individual is something that makes Lone Star a really special movie above being also just a really good mystery with a great twist at the end. You're so right about sales in the 90s. Lone Star is really strong. The one I almost had on this list was The Secret of Ronin. Mm -hmm. So yeah, good movie. Fantastic work then. Bringing Out the Dead is my number one. I, and I don't there. know. You know, I'm, I'm yeah. rethinking this as we talk about it because we have – this is from the same director who has a potential champion of film Spotting Madness, mm-hmm. right, with Goodfellas, Scorsese. Yes. But, man, I, I just love Bringing Out the Dead so much. No one ever talks about it. I haven't done a Scorsese ranked list on Letterboxd yet because there are still one or two of his films I need to see. But when I get to it, I know this is going to be one of my outliers. I really do consider it one of his best. Came out in 1999 – has Nicolas Cage as a strung-out ambulance paramedic going through this night of horrors. In many ways, this is the redemptive version of Taxi Driver in that the movie explores how bad things can get for someone and then offers this miraculous reminder that even then, they can be saved. I think some of the frenetic filmmaking here is not only on par with Taxi Driver, but also some of that electric stuff in Goodfellas that people are going to have in mind as they vote in Film Spotting Madness, even some of the camera work in Raging Bull. Bringing Out the Dead also has an amoral verve that I think a film I like a lot less, The Wolf of Wall Street, also really digs into from Scorsese, but this is missing the smarminess that got to me a little bit about that film, so... Yeah, minor Scorsese for some, one of the best of the 90s for me. Yeah, it was minor Scorsese for me at the time, and I haven't seen it since. Certainly since you've joined the show, if I was going to do a top five list of movies that you've made me recognize that I need to reconsider, Bringing Out the Dead's probably number one. Nice. Because I had always written it off much in the same way. I'd written off the number two movie on that list, which is Wes Anderson's The Life Aquatic. I don't know what the final three slots are, but... We'll save that for another show. And I think I have a better shot at winning you over with bringing out the dead. You do. Yeah. Well, I think that's probably (laughs) a good bet. Okay. My number one, going all the way back, cutting it close to 1990, a movie that if you've been listening to the show for a long time, you may remember it got a lot of early love. The first year, year and a half of this show, I think it came up on like four top five lists and none in the decade or so since. But it actually goes back to even my top five list that we did with Sam and Ryan Johnson back when he was just the director of Brick, episode 120, we did our Film Spotting University list. The five movies that we thought anybody thinking about film school, wanting to be a filmmaker, should see. And I remember that the other four films on my list were all pretty big achievements. I think Blue Velvet was on there. And speaking of Scorsese, Raging Bull was on there. Maybe the one movie that didn't quite make sense but that I adore, is Hal Hartley's Trust, a movie that was so big for me my first year of film school. And I think Hartley deserves to be mentioned here, maybe as now an overlooked filmmaker, someone who really had some remarkable achievements in the 1990s, one of the quintessential American indie directors, along with John Sayles. You look at not only Trust, but Amateur and Simple Men and Henry Fool, among other films. But this is another love story, an unusual love story of sorts that follows Adrian Shelley's Maria. She's a high school dropout. She is pregnant with her boyfriend's baby. She thinks everything is going to work out, that he'll just take her in and they'll live together and he'll support her. And when that doesn't happen and when her father passes away, this all happens really in the first five minutes of the movie, she ends up meeting Martin Donovan. Martin Donovan, the brother also in the opposite of sex. So Martin Donovan may be an overlooked 90s actor. I'm trying to give some love here. They meet 
and fall in love or fall into some version of love. And that's really the the best scene maybe in the film, the most memorable scene in Trust. The last time it got played here on the show that I recall anyway was 2006, sadly, at the time of Adrienne Shelley's murder. She was killed tragically, and we played the scene where she and Martin Donovan's Matthew lay out the groundwork, lay out the formula for what love is to her. Did you mean it? Would you marry me? Yes. Why? Because I want to. Not because you love me or anything like that, huh? I respect and admire you. Isn't that love? No, that's respect and admiration. I think that's better than love. How? When people are in love, they do all sorts of crazy things. They get jealous, they lie, they cheat, they kill themselves, kill each other doesn't have to be that way. Maybe. And speaking of formulas, there is a precision to Hartley's work that our friend Scott Tobias, when he was writing about it in an AV Club article in 2009 about Hartley and about trust in particular, he mentioned that it's something that almost became rote after a while with some of his films, and maybe it began to feel like a shtick, and we started to tune out some of Hartley's films. But trust goes back to it in its rawest and purest and most provocative form. And I remember being so provoked by it just at the time from the opening scene. That opening scene is one where we don't get credits at first, opens on a close-up, a very tight close-up of Adrienne Shelley putting makeup on. Her mother's in the background. And I'm not sure, actually, I need to watch it again. I did just watch it earlier today. But the father, we only hear him in the background. We may just kind of see him occasionally as he is pacing back and forth and they're having an argument and the camera just stays on her in that close-up. And there's something so shocking about it, honestly, and exhilarating about it. And then she drops the bombshell about being pregnant. Finally, we get a credit. We get the title of the movie and it comes back to another very set, very precise shot. But this whole drama is playing out with us filling in most of it with our imaginations. And that seems so daring to me at the time back in 1990. And I think a lot of Hartley's work felt that way to a variety of not only budding cinephiles, but budding filmmakers. So Hartley was definitely a 90s filmmaker. I wanted to give some more attention to and trust has always been my favorite of his films. Yeah, Hartley, another name that was really prominent among movie lovers in the 90s and and has faded a little bit. For some reason, though, despite that, the only one I've seen of his, No Such Thing, which was a bizarre sort of Mm -hmm. Beauty and the Beast riff with Sarah Polly. Yeah, and I didn't Um, see that. Yeah, which would have been a little bit after the era you're talking Mm -hmm. about, but that Hartley, good pick, good 90s name. Those are our top five overlooked 90s movies. Josh, any honorable mentions that you want to share? So we teased it a little bit, but let's revisit the fact that contemporary Iranian cinema was so rich at this time. And we do have Close Up included in Madness, which I think is great, but equally good. I think we could also mention Children of Heaven, The Mirror, Moment of Innocence. So just an acknowledgement that this was going on in another part of the world, such a rich explosion of cinema that we've been able to do a marathon on. So if people are interested in exploring those films, they can check out that marathon. Can I just go through a quick list just to get off my chest of egregious madness oversights that I I have no right to complain about? Here it comes. Sam, so, Sam, get ready. I, I, this this is entirely unfair because I've stayed out of all okay. the hard work you guys have put in. But I'd really like to see Beauty and the Beast in here. Mm, you're Tim not Burton's alone. The Nightmare Before Christmas I eh. mentioned. Scream, Scream Two. Yeah. Either one of those. Thought about Scream. 
I'm sure you guys considered all these. Talented Mr. Ripley. Yeah. Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai. Yep. The Fisher King. Breaking the Waves. Yeah. Those are the ones that- Breaking the Waves was even in there at one point. Yeah, I'm sure it was. Fisher King was in there at one point. Again, I don't have any real complaints. I have no right to complain, but needed to get that off my chest. As (laughs) far as some movies that are more in the formula we were talking about for this list, can The Phantom Menace be overlooked? If you're talked about negatively your entire life, you're not necessarily (laughs) overlooked. I'm going to argue once more underappreciated. It's interesting to me in the light Josh, of the last Jedi. You're doing Wait, so well. Let me let me just let me just put this spin on it uh, on this this routine uh-huh. that I return to. Uh huh. Last Jedi was received praise for the building out the world of Star Wars that Ryan Johnson brought to it, especially with Canto Bight, the Casino Planet. That's a lot of what I loved about the Phantom mm-hmm. Menace is the way George Lucas expanded mm-hmm. his creative yeah he tried. vision. So right. I think. That is an underappreciated movie. I control your mic. I can just, I can hit one button. (laughs) All right, I'll move on. I'll move on, though not very far, because really, Mars Attacks, you know my love for the Tim Burton film. Here are some more you might agree with. Something like Walking and Talking, something like Flirting with Disaster. How about Topsy Turvy from Mike Lee and Fearless? Jeff Bridges, Fearless, really One strong I need to Peter see. Weir film yeah, as well. Yeah, like Peter Weir, love Jeff Bridges. I considered all those for this list. Okay, so you mentioned Topsy Turvy, and that's one I considered. We talked about Spike Lee and Jungle Fever. The other 90s movies that I seem to go to bat for way more than anyone else I know, any other critic I know, Tim Robbins, the double feature Cradle Will Rock, oh, yeah, and I remember people Bob Roberts. Mm-hmm. No, I don't know anybody that loved Cradle Will Rock. I was yeah, it. it was kind of wasn't it kind of respected as like a pure genre effort. But you're right, Bob Roberts was a little more praised. Yeah, I think Bob Roberts probably was. It was Tim Robbins' debut as a director. But I've always loved both films. Here's one that I feel like is overlooked and certainly underappreciated: Pleasantville. Mm. I think it's a really smart movie, a really fun movie. Happiness, the Todd Solons film. This is a movie that Sam and I had on the initial list of 64. Thought it was a pivotal 90s film. I remember the experience of watching it here in Chicago at the Music Box in the late 90s when I was in film school and being shocked by it in the best way possible. And it didn't make any of those lists. And then Sam and I ended up moving it out because basically it just didn't seem to be as widely adored. But I feel like in 98, it was such a big film, at least on the indie film scene. It was just one of those films that everybody I knew was talking about, and yet, 20 years later, not getting much attention. I do like King of New York, the Abel Ferrara film with Christopher Walken, and can a movie be considered overlooked if it has a Criterion Collection release? I'm not sure, but the David Mamet film Homicide, starring Joe Mantegna and William H. Macy, is as far as I know, anyway, one of those mammoth films that very few people talk about. There are others from the 90s that do get a lot more attention from Mammoth, including Glengarry Glenn Ross, of course, which is in our film spotting madness bracket. But I am a fan of Homicide. When I think about just from a pure pleasure standpoint, I'd love to throw in and watch right now Kenneth Branagh's Dead Again. Oh, yeah. And basically Kurt Russell's Tombstone, that Western love Tombstone with Val Kilmer as Doc Holliday. I don't think I've thought about Dead Again since it came out until just now. Just now. Thank you. See? Overlooked. (laughs) There you go. And along those lines, talking about just purely fun 90s movies, I think we got to share this voicemail from listener Sarah in Seattle. Hi, Film Spotting. This is Sarah in Seattle. And I've got a remarkably imperfect and yet severely overlooked 90s movie for you. Full disclosure, nostalgia plays a big part in my choice. 1997's manic thriller Conspiracy Theory, directed by Richard Donner. 
It's an insane popcorn flick featuring a truly bonkers Mel Gibson, Julia Roberts as Julia Roberts, and Sir Patrick Stewart as the secret government agency baddie. It follows Gibson's paranoid taxi driver, Jerry, as he pursues his biggest conspiracy theory and compulsively purchases copies of The Catcher in the Rye. There's some light, okay, heavy stalking, a little brainwashing, a self-destructing apartment, black helicopters, and much more. I would never make the claim that this is a good film, but it leaves me with a smile and can't take my eyes off you in my head every time. It's the go-to movie when my dad, brother, and I don't know what else to watch. I love it. Thanks for being great. Bye. Thank you, Sarah, so much for that. I remember Conspiracy Theory being on all the time on HBO. I think I maybe even was working at a movie theater at the time it came out. Never bothered to watch more than about three minutes. Josh, did you have to review it? I probably did review it. I just put it in the same category as the Mel Gibson gets severely physically bludgeoned Uh canon which is very full of titles. It is. Again, those are our top five overlooked 90s movies. Please send us your picks or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. At filmspotting.net. You can also find 12 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. And while you're there, go ahead and get a jump start on Film Spotting Madness with our eight play-in polls. That's going to help us set the final brackets for this year's tournament. Also, if you haven't already, check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts, The Next Picture Show, and Film Spotting SVU. Wherever you're listening to this, that's where you can listen to both of those. Out in wide release this weekend, every day, a shy teenager falls for someone who transforms into another person every day. Angry Rice stars in this. She was so good in The Nice Guys. Game Night, a group of friends who meet regularly for game nights, find themselves trying to solve a murder mystery. It stars Rachel McAdams, Jason Bateman, and Jesse Plemons, and Alex Garland's latest Annihilation. Next week on the show, we'll discuss Annihilation and get into the first round Film Spotting Madness matchups. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Jeremy Wellhausen. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. As soon as you're done listening to this, please go over to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating or a review. That way we can reach new listeners. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.